1: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dobri večer and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Dobri večer from the capital city of Prague and welcome to the Bohemian Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Coleman. And I'm Travis Dow from the History of Germany podcast. So often on our program, we present to you the men of Mark that helped shape the Czech nation through the centuries. Tonight, however, we speak of the women of Bohemia and Moravia that played large roles in Czech history. From the pagan women warriors of the 6th century to the medieval queens of substance and power, we will see that Bohemian women have left their indelible mark on the history books. We will begin tonight's program with a legendary story that sets the stage for the beginnings of the Czech peoples. And that of the founding of Prague. To do this, we need to go back to the days of the pagan peoples of Central Europe and to the family led by the patriarch and king called Samo. Samo rid the area of aviar invaders in the 7th century and it was his grandson Kroc that led the Czech tribes to the Vltava River area and to the Mount of Vichirad near what is today Prague. Kroc had three daughters that all had strengths in magic and wisdom. The first one was Kaizi, the eldest, skilled in all of the magic and healing arts, which was the department of the mysteries. Tetya was the priestess of the nation, teaching the people the wisdom of the soul. And finally Libyshe, who transcended her sisters in wisdom and beauty, and was the people's eager choice to become Croc's successor and Czechia's ruler, lawmaker, and judge. Croc later died after a reign of nearly thirty years, and left his three daughters the secret wisdom of antiquity, versed in spiritual magic. Libiché was a strong leader, yet when faced with her first task of ruling over a tribal dispute between a younger and older man, her ruling was called unjust by some. This started grumblings among the Czechs that a woman could not lead them. And so Travis, once something like that occurs as a leader, you must take swift action, or confidence erodes.
0: Yeah, that's right, and the action she took was a direct result of acting on a dream that foretold of a peasant man that she should marry to strengthen her hold on governing her people. So, according to the legend, Przemysl was a peasant of the village of Staditze, who attracted the notice of Libushe. Libushe succeeded her father, and her counselors demanded that she married, but because Przemysl was not a nobleman, she recounted a vision in which they would follow a horse, let loose at a junction, and follow it to find her future husband making it appear as if it was the will of fate, and not her own wish. They found a man plowing a field with one broken sandal, and Premisl thus became the male ancestor to the well-known Premislid dynasty. As legend states, their marriage brought the tribe together, and it is Liboshe that is given the credit for announcing the spot on which to build a great city and fortress, a threshold in Czech meaning Prague, or what we call the city of Prague today. Yet, that is not where the story ends with Leboche. Even following her death, the legend of the Maidens' War was a true battle of the sexes.
1: Yeah, it really was a true battle of the sexes. And, and again, these are legends that were told, uh, especially during the, the Nationalist Revival in the late uh, 19th century. Cosimo, the the historian from, I believe, the 12th century, had written a lot of these stories down and passed them along. And of course, with the Nationalism, uh, revival in the, in the 19th century here in, uh, in, in Bohemia, that was something that people really kind of latched onto. And one of those legends dealt with the succeeding war after Lubaché's death. Uh, so when Le- Le Bichet, uh died, Vlasta, who was one of her lieutenants, leads a band of women against the male forces of Lubaché's widower, Primusil. So Sharka, Vlasta's lieutenant of, of, her, of her own, entraps a band of armed men led by Citrid by, tra- by tying herself to a tree and claiming that the rebel maidens tied her there and put a horn and a jug of mead out of reach to mock her. Now keep this in mind. When Libiché died, the women didn't want to go back to the roles of being subservient to the men. And the men wanted to actually go back to the roles that they had, which was calling all the shots. So the women had kind of gathered this tribal sort of coalition together, and they were setting up a trap. Sitra believed her story and basically takes her away from the tree, unbinds her from the tree. And being grateful for her newfound freedom, she pours the mead for all the men into a celebratory sort of thank you gift. Little do the men know that Sharka and the maidens have put a sleeping potion in the mead. So when all the men have fallen asleep, Sharka blows a horn as a signal to the rebel maidens to come out of their hiding places and join her in slaughtering the men to a person. She is captured and defeated along with the rest of the army of Maidens soon afterwards. And thus, the story of the Maidens' War ends. Now, I've talked to my wife about this. And I've talked to other women about this. And there's this uncomfortable sort of glow in their eyes when they talk about the Maidens' War. <laughs> As if, if just, I, think, I think a couple of women we've asked about this said, just think about what if the Maidens' the maiden War was won by the women? What, what kind of difference would that be? Pretty much, how I, it... I think things still would have kind of, <laughs> kind of gone back to to a, a male centered society. But um, it's interesting that this story is told, and it's interesting about the legend of Libiché, Travis because we talk about in a time of uh, uh, basically a male dominated society, even in the in the days of of of, of pagan tribes, uh, to have a matriarchal society was something
0: that was. Not all that common, not unheard of, but not all that common. Well, yeah, more common than like, let's say, in the Roman world, but still not an everyday occurrence. Some people say there's an area in
1: Prague 6 that's pretty much to the northwest of the city, near Davidska, which is a big traffic circle. You mean Divoká šarka? Well, in between there and, and, yes, the big mound that's very close to the airport, uh, Sharka, which is one of the names of of the people in the story. And they said the battle was somewhere around there because that's where they found tribal weapons that date back to this time frame. And we're talking the 7th century at this point. where this possibly would have taken place. All right, hmm. so uh, needless to say that the Primilicid dynasty does continue and it goes all the way to the I before he passes away as the last connection to the Primilicid dynasty. So we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And it all starts with Libesce and Primilicid. And that's this kind of an interesting story we talk about with our women of Czech history today, where someone really can't put a, a, a definite date to because it's more, I think, more of legend than it is of historical fact. But needless to say, it is a pretty uh, interesting story to start our podcast tonight. Sure. So from the pagan women warriors of Czech history to a woman of faith in the
0: 13th century, we're now going to talk about Agnes of Bohemia. There was a woman named Agnes... And she was the daughter of the famous warrior King Ottokar I. One of my favorites. Yeah. Um, and she was en- engaged to Boleslaus when she was three. And when he died to Henry. And now Henry was the son of Emperor Frederick the Second. Okay. And this is still, she was really young. She was like nine when for her second engagement. Now she was overjoyed when Henry married the daughter of the Duke of Austria. As she had offered herself to God and hoped to live a life of austerity and virginity. Her brother then sent her off to Frederick and when in in 1235 Frederick sent for her she petitioned Pope Gregory the IX to intercede for her and when he did Frederick l- released her from the engagement.
1: Now, th- now this is this is pretty much a uh, a slam dunk for, for Agnes here at this time because you know she comes from royalty
0: mm-hmm.
1: and she's got a, a direct line from Czech royalty from the very beginning um, so she's got some say in this. However, as a woman and in this time frame, to be uh, matched with another power uh, person to be able to, to to bring two two nation states together or to strengthen a kingdom or a realm was something that was that happened quite a bit. And these arranged marriages was something that she didn't want to take part in. So she felt that her heart was with 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 Christ and that she wanted to be uh, uh, give herself uh, to him completely and not to these arranged marriages. Yeah. So when you brought this to the Pope, of course the Pope's going to say, you know what, you know, you made your commitment. Um, we, I can absolve you from this arranged marriage.
0: So, yeah, so anyways, in the next year, in 1236, she built a convent for the Friars Minor in Prague, staffed by five nuns, sent by St. Clair, and Agnes took the veil there. So she was named the abbess soon after, and became renowned for her humility, aid to the poor, and her dedication to poverty. She died in Prague on March 2nd, 1282, and then she was canonized by Pope John Paul in 1989, so not that long ago. Agnes built a complex of a monastery and friary attached to the hospital, and there the Franciscan friars and the poor Clare nuns who worked at the hospital resided. This religious complex was one of the first gothic buildings in Prague. In 1235, Agnes gave the property to the Teutonic Knights in Bohemia to the hospital. She herself became a member of the Franciscan Poor Clares in 1236. And as a nun, she cooked for and took care of the lepers and paupers personally, even after becoming the abbess.
1: So Travis, the convent or the abbey at the time of the Clares is is now titled St. Agnes' Convent uh, or church that you'll see here in Prague, right along the Villatava River in Prague 1. And it's one of my favorite places. Actually, I was just there uh, a few days ago. It's a museum of Gothic artwork now, which is actually pretty amazing. But you actually can go in uh, to, the, to the first level of the convent and walk around and see the kitchen area where most likely she, she prepared food for the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, of course, been burned down by the Hugh sites and rebuilt again. But the foundations are set pretty much what was set up in her time. And uh, you will see that were, this was a convent that was also supposed to be a burial place for the Primlicid dynasty. So there's our connection to Libesche on this one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's Wenceslaus II, I believe, is, is buried there. And the rest of the Premyslids are buried, of course, in Zabaslav Monastery on the south end of Prague. And then the rest are in uh, Prague Castle on St. Vitus Cathedral. So they're kind of scattered, but there are a few remnants uh, that are buried there, including St. Agnes herself, they say. We don't know exactly where she where, where she was laid to rest originally. Uh, but you can kind of feel that this was a place for Agnes. Think about this for a minute before we go any further tonight on Agnes. Here she is, a, a valuable tool for, for King Otakar to expand his empire. When you have daughters, the one thing you're going to get out of them, you hope, is to marry them, no matter what they're like, no matter if they're beautiful or not beautiful. And as a matter of fact, legend says that she was not a beautiful woman uh uh-huh. Okay? It's not very nice. It's not a very nice thing to, to hear. Uh, but <laughs> later on, you'll see there's contradictory accounts that she was a lovely woman. Uh, the pro, well, yeah. yeah. The, the, what they say, though, is that once she took the veil of celibacy and and became a nun, she became beautiful. Interesting. Due to okay. her, her giving yeah. to the poor. So that was one of the legends that they have with her. And, of course, there's legends abound about this place um, where, where the original Abbey is, was located and where St. Agnes is today. Uh, and there's something for another show that we can put in. But think about this for a minute. Agnes had everything at her doorstep, and she, she gave everything up, especially for her father, uh, King Ottokar, who was looking to expand his kingdom throughout all of Central Europe. Mm-hmm. And so this was a big step for her to give herself to the church uh, in, a, in a time where she probably would have got uh, more power for her father by being wedded off to somebody else at mm-hmm. the time.
0: Agnes lived out her entire, the rest of her life in the cloister, uh, leading the monastery as abbess, like we mentioned, until her death on 2nd of March, 1282. And though Agnes died in 1282, she was still venerated by Christians around the world more than 700 years later. So she was honored in 2011, which is the 800th anniversary of her birth, as the saint of the overthrow of communism.
1: One thing you can take away from what she gave as far as an example is that she gave to the poor. And at a time when that wasn't something that was done so easily, or uh, wasn't re- wasn't really acknowledged, she did that. Finally, we, we, we're gonna go a little further in history to the 14th century tonight, before we wrap up our program, to a marriage that I thought was very interesting that bonded the favorite
0: daughter of Bohemia to the English throne. Who would that be? That would be Anne of Bohemia, also known as the Good Queen Anne.
1: All right. Do you know about
0: Queen Anne? Mm-hmm. Sure, I don't.
1: All right. So, so Queen Anne uh, was the Queen of England as the first wife of King Richard II. She was a member of the House of Luxembourg and was the eldest daughter of Charles IV, oh, the Holy Roman okay. Emperor and of Elizabeth of Pomerania. So we've talked about Charles IV so many times on this podcast because he needs to be talked about. I mean, he's right up there uh, of who, who made Prague the city that it is today. And who basically put the power of the Holy Roman Empire in the seat of Prague, in the Kingdom of Bohemia. So his daughter was another daughter that was supposed to be wedded off. So King Charles IV had a lot of children, and one of one of his favorites was was his daughter Anne. And to see her married off to the King of England must have been a, a very important part of his reign. But at the same time, something that would have would have really kind of pained him a little bit because. He loved Anne very much. Her new life now was going to be in England, and it was going to be in a very tumultuous time, in English history.
0: So Richard II married Anne of Bohemia as a result of the great schism in the papacy that had resulted in two rival popes. According to Edward Perroy, Pope Urban VI actually sanctioned the marriage between Richard and Anne in an attempt to create an, an alliance on his behalf, particularly so that he might be stronger against the French and their preferred pope, Clement. Anne's father was the most powerful monarch in Europe at the time, ruling over about half of Europe's population and territory. Now, the marriage was against the wishes of many members of his nobility and members of Parliament. On her arrival in December 1381, Anne was severely criticized by contemporary chroniclers, probably as a result of the financial arrangements of the marriage, although it was quite typical for queens to be viewed in critical terms. That's
1: just, right? Yeah, and let let me interject with this because when she left Bohemia for England, she had no dowry. That's un, that's unheard of. All right, there was no Why? dowry. Well, be, because this had an issue with all the the schism going on in the church, that there were other things she was bringing to the table with with connecting the Holy Roman Empire to us to uh, Richard the, Richard the, II's empire. Chucky
0: Forcan But with give uh, her a bridge I, or something. I don't
1: know what the deal was with that, other than the fact that it, it was something that wasn't going to be given. And so a lot of the people in England looked at this as a a mockery of of their country uh, and their people. And so already Anne's coming into a really difficult situation.
0: Yeah, in fact, there was a Westminster chronicler that called her a tiny scrap of humanity. And Thomas Walsingham related a disastrous omen upon her arrival where her ship smashed to pieces as soon as she had disembarked. Nevertheless, Anne and King Richard II were married in Westminster Abbey on the twentieth of January, thirteen eighty-two. Now tournaments were held for several days after the ceremony in celebration. She needed time to be welcomed by the people of England. Yeah, that time
1: came, Travis, because uh, she actually interceded on a few occasions where Richard II was going to level the boom on some of his subjects.
0: Le- level the boom? Was he going to drop the base? He's going
1: to drop the base. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he was like, "Off with his head!" <laughs> he, <laughs> and he, okay. okay.
1: At her core, she was a very kind person and popular with the people of England after a time. And this was because she was well known for her tireless attempts to intercede on behalf of, her, of the people, procuring pardons for participants in the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 and numerous other pardons uh, for wrongdoers as well. But the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 was very interesting because the peasants were having an uprising for, uh, for all the, the hardships they were, they, were, um, they were having and not being represented. King Richard II wanted to do away with these folks. He wanted to have mass executions to send home the point that you do not uprise against the government. Anne intercedes. She stops this at all from happening. There are no punishments that are are capital punishments because of Anne. And uh, that is a huge thing. So that starts to endear her to the
0: people. She saved the life of John Northampton, a former mayor of London, in 1384. Her humble begging convinced Richard II to merely commit the offender to lifelong imprisonment. And Anne's most famous act of intercession was on behalf of the citizens of London in the ceremonial reconciliation of Richard and London in 1392. The Queen's role has been memorialized in Richard Maidstone's reconciliation of Richard II with the city of London. On the other hand, she never fulfilled many traditional duties of Queen's. In particular, she did not bear children, despite 12 years of marriage, and this is perhaps emphasized in her epitaph where, whereby she is mentioned as having been kind to pregnant women. The Evesham chronicler said this queen, although she did not bear children, was still held to have contributed to the glory and wealth of the realm as far as she was able. Noble and common people suffered greatly at her death. Nevertheless, her popular legacy as good queen Anne suggests that this lack of children was unimportant to many contemporaries.
1: You know, think about that, that for a minute. That's weird. That, that almost ruined many, oh, many, many yeah. uh, uh, kingships and 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 potentates from continuing their reign when they could not produce children. I'm thinking of Henry VIII right now, at the top of my mind. Yeah. How many women did he go through? All right. So I mean, six. Yeah, yeah and <laughs> not not with a very happy ending. So, uh, <laughs> you know, here. To, say, to call her good Queen Anne would be an understatement. but I want you to think about this. if you're going to take something away from Queen Anne, not just her works, but think about the love affair that she had with Richard II. Here, here's, here's a woman that's married to the, to the King of England, a very powerful post and, and she made her, her name she made a name for herself. And what she was able to do is to ingratiate herself to the people of England. But the love that she had with Richard is something that's, I wouldn't say is common for the time for a, for a prearranged marriage. Anne's death from plague in 1394 at Sheen Manor was a devastating blow to Richard, whose subsequently uh, unwise conduct lost him his throne. So he was dethroned mm-hmm. a- after the loss. I mean, he was also, he, he could not go any further because he was just you know, forlorn for the love that he lost with Anne's death. He did remarry a a second wife, Isabella of of Valois, on the 31st of October in 1396, but he never got over Anne. And as a matter of fact, he wanted to be buried with her. Anne is buried at Westminster Abbey beside her husband, uh, and you can see their tomb today. Their joint tomb, now damaged, once showed them clasping hands together. The inscription on the tomb described her as beauteous in body, and her face was gentle and pretty. It's a very nice way to put it on a tombstone, isn't
0: it? All lies. Uh,
1: yeah. When her to- when her tomb was opened in 1871, it was discovered that many of her bones had been stolen through the side of the casket. So Travis, what is her legacy, and and why does it seem significant? Because there's a couple things that are kind of tidbits of information, trivia things that I think uh, is 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 very interesting about Anna Bohemia.
0: Actually, so Anna Bohemia is known to have made the side saddle more popular to ladies in the Middle Ages. She also influenced the design of carts in England when she arrived in a carriage, presumably from Kautz, Hungary, to meet her future husband, Richard. She also made the horned Bohemian-style headdress, the fashion for English women in the late 14th century. Have you seen that That's, before? I, yeah, I, think, that,
1: I, I think I've told you that before, actually. It's, it's and you see this in, in a lot of paintings and it Exactly, it's like a
0: really popular thing. It's People a very
1: weird thing. It, looked, it They look like giant horns coming out of it your head about maybe It looks like two Madonna's feet. bra. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> put on their head put on their head. so Travis uh, once again for our listeners that uh, have been tuning in uh, for the past couple of years a uh, couple notes that we need to do or some housekeeping we need to say you also could take a look at our bohemican.com website that's been redesigned uh, there will be some new additions as well as a shop eventually that's going in there to take a look at some of the written works uh, that we have for the show we also have some changes that are coming up to the podcast Travis is going back to the United States to continue work in California and uh, we're going to still keep the show going. We're actually doing a lot of recordings before he leaves shortly in the next month or so. And we will um, continue this via uh, probably some kind of Skype or Google, Google chat to see if we can keep the show going uh, in that sense. So no worries on that end. The Bohemian podcast will continue as well as the history of Germany and uh, the history of alchemy.
0: Yeah, there's there's a couple of good history of alchemy shows coming up and, and uh, some good history of Germany shows coming up. So stay tuned for that.
1: So we're going to wrap up the program tonight. We'll be back with you next time with another episode of the Bohemian Podcast for Travis Dow on Pete Coleman saying goodnight from Prague. You have been listening to the Bohemian Podcast with Pete Coleman and Travis Dow. Visit bohemican.com for more information on this episode, other episodes and much more information about history, traditions and culture in the Czech Republic. Find us on iTunes, subscribe and review and don't forget to rate us. We would love to hear from you. Send comments, ideas and corrections on our comments page on bohemican.com or get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. Tune in to our sister podcast, History of Alchemy, which is also on iTunes or on historyofalchemy.com. Until next time on the Bohemian Podcast, thank you for listening.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.